Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Today on the pod, having already hit Vancouver taxpayers with a double-digit property tax increase, why is City Hall wanting the nickel-and-dime residents with $15 million in new fee hikes? Plus, for the first time, international students from India are outpacing the Ontario government in funding colleges in that province. Is the same happening in B.C.? And can tiny shelters help fight homelessness in Vancouver? Jerry Mayor Judson joins us to see how the approach has fared in other cities in Canada. That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Vancouver City Council is preparing to review a slew of new fees on everything from licensing your dog to licensing your business, and some of the proposed hikes are substantial. Revenue from the hikes uh, would mean an extra $15 million, slightly just, just slightly above $15 million, and it would shave off the equivalent of 1.4% property tax increase for the 2024 budget. Now, the city's budget, the overall budget, sits at just under $2 billion, and last year's property tax hike was 10.7%. Uh, and a budget Budget outlook prepared by city staff in June warned that Vancouverites could be on the hook for a 9% property tax hike every year for the next five years if the municipality's financial situation doesn't change. Now, I was on here yesterday talking about uh, taxpayers potentially being nickel and dimed uh, based on this proposal. Sarah Kirby Young, an ABC councillor, uh, was on Jill Bennett's show earlier today. Uh, they talked about a variety of issues. One of them uh, was focused on uh, these proposed fees. Uh, take a listen to Councillor Young's response. We do survey um, pretty substantively around the budget processes uh, for residents and for businesses. And what we see is that there's a lot more willingness to pay fees for services um, as opposed to a broad-based tax increase. So, for example, um, our survey showed that 43% are opposed to a property tax increase, but only 5% of people were opposed to fee increases. Similarly, we saw that 64% of residents and 57% of businesses were more willing to see a fee increase for services they were using than they were to see that broader tax increase. So that we're sort of going from a database perspective and we're trying to be really responsive to what we're hearing from people. And that is uh, Councillor Sarah Kirby-Young. Now, I do want to reiterate that these are recommendations. They'll be debated over the next uh, week or so before any decision is made. Joining me now is Vancouver City Councillor Pete Fry. Councillor Fry, thank you for joining us. Hi, Jazz. Hello. Uh, I was on a bit of a rant yesterday. I don't know if you heard. Uh, I, was I did look- hear that. <laughs> you did hear that. All right. Well, look, it's a $2 billion budget. My thinking is there's got to be some savings rather than looking at increasing uh, uh, some of these fees. Nickel and diming people I think it was is what I re- referred to it is can't the council find savings in a two billion dollar budget rather than worrying about let's increase uh, your dog licensing fee yeah and and certainly this this report that we're getting on Wednesday doesn't preclude those options in fact the mayor has initiated a budget review task force that's supposed to be reporting back in October with further recommendations <clears throat> I haven't seen it I'm not part of that task force review but I'll certainly be seeing it along with the rest of the public when they come forward in October and those might illuminate some opportunities to to shave a little bit more off the budget. I think, you know, to your clip with Councillor Kirby Young, that's exactly correct, though, that it, since I've been on council in 2018, every single budget outlook that we've received mm-hmm. has indicated that folks have more preference towards user fees increasing rather than property tax increasing. Now, whether or not that's um, an indication of folks feeling that they don't necessarily use the services that would be seeing the fee increase, 
is debatable, but that's the numbers do actually bear that out. Uh, I was mentioning there was an initial report in June saying the cost pressures are profound on Vancouver uh, uh, City uh, Council. Uh, you know, one report in June warned that Vancouverites could be on the hook for a nine percent property tax hike every year for the next five years uh, if the municipality's financial situation doesn't change. I know the city does a lot. Uh, you've got lots of employees. There are fixed costs that come with it. But does this not? If these, if this nine percent every year for the next five years, if that were to be true, does that, does that not speak to a structural challenge rather than uh, just a spending one? I mean, you should be looking at, wait a minute here, the budget says that we're probably spending too much. We've got to get our costs in line. And shouldn't that be the focus? Yeah, um, but I will sort of counter that with, with the year before we had a budget outlook that suggested uh, in 2022, mm-hmm. uh, we would see increases of 8% a year going to 2026. So the electorate decided to elect ABC with some big promises, with big commitments for even more spending, mm-hmm. when we already knew that we were looking down the barrel of an 8% increase for the next four years. So for it to come out at 9% shouldn't be a big surprise for anybody because we are adding 100 new police officers, 100 new uh, now entering the world of mental health nursing. Mm-hmm. So those all come with price tags. And, and there's a, a lot of stuff that was committed to by the ABC council mm-hmm. and mayor, and they're fulfilling their promises and the commitment to the electorate. But I think it obviously does come with an expectation that it's going to cost money to to pay for those sort of things. So when we see the increase, it is sort of fulfillment of what they had committed to do. So <clears throat> uh, I get where you're coming from there. Uh, I'm curious, though, though, uh, is Vancouver City, the city itself, involved in programs because of downloading from other levels of government. I mean, look at, you know, I think there's daycare subsidy somewhere there as well. Yeah. yeah. Like the city hall shouldn't sure. be in the daycare I mean, business, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, somebody's got to do it. And I mean, case in point too, that just that I just mentioned, the mental health nurse hires. I can tell you, colleagues from across the province were flabbergasted to think that a municipal government was stepping into the world of healthcare provision because it's never been our, our ballywick or purview. Uh, daycares have been sort of one of those add-ons that we see in a lot of local governments approve a new development, include some daycare as sort of part of the community uh, amenity contribution. Or but, the, but there's no fix. Uh, uh, but the city has fixed costs for daycare, do, do they not? Um, well, a lot of the daycares come as as contributions, contributions, so in kind okay. contributions from developers or that kind of thing, and a lot of them involve this. Don't get me wrong. The city of Vancouver has invested in a lot of, and we have a lot of daycare that are coming down the pipe. And those foregone revenues that could be going into say sewers and parks and other things are instead going into daycare. So it is a, it is pulling from one pocket, putting into the other for sure. Uh, can the city continue the, the route, the, the, the route it's going right now when you think whether it's 8% a year or 9%, I mean, we used to, in my old days as a reporter, be two or 3% a year. You'd have these debates, you figure out a number. Eight, uh, nine, in the case of 2023, a 10.7% property tax increase. Something has to give here. Well, this is a struggle for local governments across Canada, and I suspect around North America, is a lot of our infrastructure deficit. We have aging aging infrastructure that needs to be replaced. We have labor costs that are considerable. We have construction costs and inflationary pressures that are being borne by cities, and we're increasingly getting more asks of our populace and more downloading from senior governments that we're having to find ways to pay for. And, of course... Local governments are limited in our revenue sources to basically property tax or mm-hmm. fees. So when we see this fee uh, component being introduced, and I think some of it's a, a bit frustrating for folks. I, I have a dog. I don't necessarily want to pay 
extra for my dog license. And I'm, you know, and I think folks would rightly, and the questions I'll be asking are, what values are we bringing to this equation? Because when we talk about permits and, and contractors and all those kind of pieces, we hear a lot of frustration from contractors that they can't get their permits processed fast enough. So hopefully we will also be hearing, and that's what I'll be asking, is how are we improving service along with these increased fees? Mm -hmm. uh, I think not a lot of people are going to be losing sleep over the increased fees for Airbnb, frankly. I think the short-term rental file we've seen, you know, in my, in my five years on council now, every business license sharing I've attended has been a short-term rental operator who's been caught flagrantly violating the rules of the short-term rentals, mm -hmm. uh, and egregiously so, and trying to plead their case. And I'll tell you, those business license hearings, it takes, you know, we've got a lawyer, we've got two staff, we've got three counselors, two clerks. We have a full house to attend to this one Airbnb operator that feels they are above the law. Mm -hmm. And and so some of that increase in the fees, I think $109 a year for an Airbnb license was far too low. And I think this will help offset some of the impacts that we're paying for. Uh, I wouldn't disagree with you on the Airbnb. I, I don't lose any sleep on those types of individuals. I think you're right. But uh, there's a lot of other ones that I think people are going to go, wait a minute here. And you raised some of them in the issue issue uh, of just getting housing built, uh, small businesses and that, that sort. Folks, give me a call on the open line. We are speaking to Vancouver Councillor Pete Fry. We're talking about a recommendation from city staff uh, that there be an increase in a variety of fees uh, in Vancouver, uh, from licensing your dog to licensing your business, uh, and some of the proposed hikes, uh, some have argued, are uh, are substantial. Uh, trades and contracting licensing fees uh, increase from 171 to two and 207 respectively to 340. Uh, so there's lots of uh, little increases here and there. Like I said, it'll raise about 15 million dollars. Some have argued, find the savings in a two billion dollar uh, budget. Call me on the open line. Do want to hear from you? 604. 280-9898, star 9898 on your cell phone. Uh, let's go to the open line. Let's go to Doug in Langley. Hi, Doug. Hi, Jazz. Thanks for taking my call. Um, I'm, I'm with you on the Airbnb. Now, I think if you if you do this properly, you can not only raise revenue, but you can also put a lot of units on uh, for long-term housing. Raise the fee to five grand a year or ten grand a year. For, um, for Air, Airbnb, it, for short-term rentals. For, for short-term rentals, if, if it's ten grand a year and somebody still wants to do the Airbnb, the city gets a ton of dough. But if these people go too expensive, I'd rather rent to a long-term tenant. Mm -hmm. You saw you saw some of the the rental crisis, mm -hmm. and it doesn't cost the city a nickel. Doug's got a good point there, Pete. I mean, uh, we're cherry-picking fee increases now, but I, I, no one really has any sympathy for Airbnb and those operators. Uh, could you see something like that happening? You know, we've had the conversation since I've been elected, and I've been pushing for some kind of Airbnb reform. The challenge that staff have articulated and the concern they've had with raising the license fee in the past was that it would drive people underground. And indeed, that we know that there's Airbnb is the only one, actually, the only short-term rental company that has an MOU with the city of Vancouver. And will sort of share data with us. The others don't. And we know that there's a very robust uh, um, short-term rental operation on WeChat in, in, that's not in English at all. Mm -hmm. And we're not tracking that. So there's, the, the, I guess the concern is if we, if we go too hard on the short-term rental licensing fee, people will just go underground and they'll just do it with other means and it will become less safe, harder for us to enforce mm -hmm. um, and, and create a whole new kind of underground economy. Uh, and generally, I, as you know, I don't like the fee increases, but even 450 seems low to me. I'd like to see a little bit more because I, you know, you hear people renting an apartment for 3,000 a month, uh, and then with Airbnb, they can make 4,500, so they're clearing 1,500 
per apartment that they're renting. They could be renting four of them, right? Oh, yeah. No, I don't think you can get an Airbnb in Vancouver for less than 150 bucks a night. So, yeah. I mean, and that's at the very low end. I think most of them are around 300 bucks a night. So this is just the cost of doing business. Mm-hmm. I, I don't disagree, and that's certainly something that I think that will come up in conversation on Wednesday. Okay. Uh, Doug, thanks for your call. Let's go to Clayton in Vancouver. Hi, Clayton. Hey, guys. Hey, thanks for taking my call. I think um, increasing fees is a is a much better idea than just flat, flat out increasing land taxes. But I think before we get too constrained by our budgetary worries, I think it's more important that we actually break down the budget and find the waste. I mean, it doesn't take a brainiac to drive around and see, you know, city workers, there's 14 of them digging a hole. There doesn't take a brainiac to figure out that <clears throat> all of the parking revenues where are they going? Where are some of the eco fees going? Where are where are some of the levies going? Where are they actually going? And what's being wasted? What's necessary? Is it necessary for the municipality to have daycare? Is it necessary for them to provide health care? Absolutely not. Infrastructure, services, water, sewer, that's necessary. Where every every house in Vancouver is on a combined sewer. It's not even been separated, and there's no plan to separate them. Clayton, thank you. Thanks for your call, my friend. Appreciate it. Got the point. Um, I think he raises a very good point. I don't think the city, and I don't mean this to be just Vancouver, but I think cities generally really need to provide a breakdown. And I know you send one out probably every year like most municipalities do in regards to where money goes, but perhaps it's not being articulated very well to residents, taxpayers, saying, look, this is where the money is going and get it and have that conversation about should you be in the daycare business? Should you be in some of the things that you're providing? Well, and, and we do provide a pretty robust budget book that looks at a lot of this stuff. I will say that we hear from lots of folks who think that we should be in the daycare business and a lot of parents mm-hmm. who are really struggling in the city of Vancouver, they work here, they live here, and they're struggling with daycare for their kids. So yeah. they're asking us for that. So that is something. Uh, we are doing combined sewer separation right now. That's an active thing that's been going on for years in the city of Vancouver. Um, and I want to also add that the mayor has initiated this budget task force review with some pretty high-profile players, uh, Bridget Anderson from the Board of Trade, Joy McPhail, former NDP MLA. They're all at the table working on 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 the exact thing that I think Clayton was sort of getting at is yeah. looking for where there may be some opportunities to, to rein in some of the budget pieces. And we'll see what that looks like when it comes back in, in September or October. Well, I look forward to the debate next week on, on this fee issue. Uh, I really appreciate you coming in and taking some calls for us as well. Thank hey, you so much. Totally pleasure. Most of the focus on artificial intelligence in K-12 education uh, has been on chat GPT and how students can use it to cheat. But that obscures the bigger changes that education, uh, that AI brings to education, and the advances are quite profound. AI has opened up learning opportunities for students that would never have been possible with only traditional teaching. Uh, Artificial intelligence in education can be a game changer when implemented with caution and a well-structured strategy. Joining me now to talk a little bit about AI and the positives uh, it can bring to a K-12 classroom is Dr. Ron Darvin, an assistant professor in the Faculty of Education at UBC. Dr. Darvin, thank you for joining us. Great to be here, Jeff. Uh, how can educators use AI to supplement uh, teaching today in your mind? Well, uh, definitely because it's a language learning model that's able to generate answers for many different kinds of purposes, right? Even teachers uh, could ask chat GPT, for instance, to, to provide them uh, creative ways to explain, let's say, quantum physics to a grade five student, right? So, mm-hmm. so more complex ideas and finding ways to 
kind of creatively presented to them is is one possible way, uh, because uh, it's uh, ChatGPT is also able to uh, converse in different languages. You can even use it as a conversation partner to learn French, um, and even when it comes to uh, learning different. Um, concepts and, and being able to think of ideas to present it in class, ChatGPT can also provide you with, with different uh, creative uh, ways. Mm-hmm. Um, the example you, you've given me um, are interesting. Where does the traditional teacher fit into all of this? Because there are opportunities, as you say, and, and, and you've provided some of those uh, opportunities uh, to us. Where does the traditional teacher fit into this conversation? Well, I think when it comes to uh, integrating AI in the classroom, it does uh, lead us to ask bigger questions about kind of like what the role of the teacher is, right, uh, in learning. Uh, because we can see how there's many ways to be able to, to, to generate this content, to find out more about a specific topic. Uh, I think what the future may look like, of course, I, I, we can't say for sure, but it seems like it's pointing to a future where there's more flipped classrooms, right? Which means that uh, the reading content and being able to absorb this information might happen more outside the classroom. Whereas uh, what the teacher then um, is able to do is to kind of like facilitate kind of different activities that will allow them to apply the knowledge that they gain uh, from these different tools and to just make sure that they're on the right track. Uh, because as we know, you know, uh, they're not completely reliable. They can generate information that's not, uh, you know, necessarily accurate. And so uh, the teacher being able to, to guide students in, in terms of very productive and ethical use, I think, is key here. Mm-hmm. Um, are there um, any risks uh, with children using AI? And, and, you know, when you look at technology today, you're seeing greater class action lawsuits brought on by school districts uh, where they're concerned about social media and the impact they're having on kids, mm-hmm. not only on me- their, 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 their mental health, but also time lost in, in classrooms. Uh, I'm not saying AI is, is the same thing. These technologies are different. Uh, but are there any risks that you see at this point with children using AI? For sure. I mean, of course, there are issues of uh, children's privacy and security, right? Uh, Because uh, these tools don't have any age verification mechanisms. And because conversing with these chatbots might involve sharing personal information, and they're collecting data from these interactions. And so these pose privacy risks, especially for young children, because uh, that means that uh, children can be provided are not only inaccurate content, but also inappropriate content. And so parents would need to supervise uh, how their kids are using these chatbots and the kind of information that they're getting. Uh, because especially if they're collecting your IP address, your location, uh, the info that you type into the chatbot, and this is sold to vendors and service providers uh, that we may not necessarily be aware uh, of, then it might feed back certain content uh, to uh, young kids uh, that require a kind of moderation. Mm-hmm. Um, what advice would you give to parents? Uh, you know, my, my son is in grade 10. Uh, I think he was using uh, chat GPT last year in regards to a project to do some research. Uh, and it's the first time sort of it's been brought up in our house and I was, I was watching him use it. Um, should parents be worried? I mean, what, what role should parents 
play in all of this in regards to kids using it? Because the natural, natural inclination, I think, for parents is going to go, well, you do your own research, do it traditionally, and because we haven't been raised on the, the, the chat GPT, um, what, what, what advice would you give to parents who are also watching their kids use this new technology? I think the most important thing is really to have that conversation with our kids and ask them uh, how they've been using the tool, right? Uh, and uh, for parents also to understand how these tools work so that they themselves can um, can help their own kids understand like the limitations and, and constraints of these tools. Because I think if they first recognize that uh, you know, these, these tools can sometimes what they call hallucinate and provide wrong information that they have to understand that it's not completely reliable. Uh, at the same time, uh, they, they have to learn how to process information that they get from these tools because uh, without having them think critically, right, mm-hmm. uh, about uh, how these tools operate, then they, they, you know, they might just take information for what it is from these tools uh, and, and that would definitely hinder their critical thinking and problem-solving skills. Dr. Darwin, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Great. No problem. International students from India are now paying more to Ontario colleges than the provincial government, according to a new report. Now, the amount that students from India pay into Ontario's college system has been growing for years, but 2023-2024 was the first year that it topped government Dollars. Those are the findings from a new study called the State of Post-Secondary Education in Canada. It's published by Higher Education Strategy Associates. Alex Usher is the co-author of the report, and he joins us now. Alex, thank you for speaking to us today. Pleasure. Uh, did the findings surprise you? Uh, and what I mean by that is the fact that uh, uh, Indian students are outpacing the Ontario government in, in, in funding colleges. Uh, it wouldn't surprise many people who are paying attention in Ontario. I don't think most people, many people outside Ontario pay attention to Ontario colleges. Um, look, the provincial government funds the average college student at 44% of the level that the other nine provinces do. Those colleges are hugely underfunded. Um, and not only that, but it has reduced tuition for domestic students and then, and then kept it uh, frozen during a period of very high inflation. So what you've seen is that the, the ability of Ontario colleges to get money from domestic sources has been eroding very quickly over the last five years, and they weren't well-funded to begin with. So what they did was they turned to uh, students from abroad, and I think uh, you know five years ago, B.C. probably would have beat Ontario in terms of the number of, uh, you know, the percentage of the college students who came from abroad. And Ontario has just gone haywire. I think the, the best estimates for this year are that 53% of college students in Ontario are from overseas, and well over half of those are from India. So in a broad sense, uh, no, I was not surprised. I knew we'd get here eventually. Mm-hmm. Um, I think what the, 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 the math shows you is just, you know, this, this is the year it happened. But it was inevitable the way the path was going. Uh, now, in 2013, uh, Canada had about 225,000 international students, and now we're hovering around 900,000. So in 10 years, a significant increase. So, so I think the question is, can we wean ourselves off this funding model? Yes, but it would require a reversal of about 45 years' worth of policy from provincial governments. Um, we topped out in terms of public funding of education at about uh, 2% of gross domestic product in the early 
and mid-1970s, and it's been going down very slowly every year. Um, and it's not, you know, it, not everybody's at the same place. Ontario is clearly in a different kind of category. BC and Nova Scotia would be the next two, you know, sort of lowest funded provinces. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, the other provinces are kind of above them. But everybody's heading in Ontario's direction. The question is just how fast they're going to get there. Um, unless, like I say, you start changing some policies around either domestic tuition fees or, or domestic, uh, you know, spending on universities and colleges or both. And, uh, in, in, in at the end of the day, also, I mean, I'm sure you're having the same conversation in Ontario. The other conversation here is where do all these students live? That it is, uh, at least anecdotally, uh, many are saying that it is just leading to a fight for simple housing where you have students, you know, renting, uh, you know, six to, to an apartment, sometimes even more, but it ultimately is leading to, uh, you know, a huge uptick in rent. I think in BC here or in Vancouver, uh, the average rent now for a one-bedroom in the city of Vancouver is, is just over $3,000. So uh, yep. are you seeing the same thing in Ontario? Uh, Toronto, the levels are about the same. And certainly uh, what you're seeing in most of the big cities in Canada are growth is is growth of about 25% in rent, uh, rise in rent of about 25% over the last two years. Calgary is higher, not because of students, but just Calgary. Calgary grew by 100,000 people last year, <laughs> like, which is, you know, that's pretty amazing. That's sort of 8% of their population in one year. And rents went up by 50%. Um, and so, you're, you know, I think we have a, a general issue of immigration, and some of it is permanent immigrants and some of it is short-term immigrants like students. And uh, combined with the fact that we have... Uh, just a terrible record of building housing in this country. Um, you know, those two things combine to make things uh, difficult. But I think the other thing I want to—I think is important to mention is, yes, it's true that in, the international students have a terrible time finding housing and they and are often living in very substandard conditions and, um, you know, rotating through the same, you know, three, three people uh, uh, sharing a bed in kind of eight-hour rotations. You, you see that kind of thing happening. You see people living out of their cars. I saw something... Uh, today about sort of tent encampments that have spread it up at a couple of Ontario colleges. Um, but everybody pays these. It's not just students or immigrants that are paying these higher prices. It's anybody who's renting. And so what we do, the position that I think some colleges are putting some communities in, is basically they're, they're taxing local residents. They're saying we need these students' money, mm-hmm. their tuition money, but in fact everybody is going to pay more not to the institution directly, but because the institution has caused uh, rental prices to rise. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that's very good for town-gown relations. No. Um, now, what I also find interesting uh, is that, you know, uh, prior to all of this, uh, last year the federal government uh, elim- eliminated the 20-hour-a-week limit on work by international students, so they can work a lot more. Uh, a lot more are coming here. In the case of India, these, these students are not rich. It's mm-hmm. mom and dad probably uh-huh. leveraging every bit of dollar that they have to get them here. Uh, but we to somewhat argue we've turned our public educational institutions and certainly our private ones into diploma mills. I mean, this cannot be overall a good thing for our education system either. So I think, uh, I, so I get a little, uh, I push back a little bit on this diploma mill thing. I don't mm-hmm. think there's much, um, I don't think there's much as solid evidence yet that the, the education the students are getting is that different from what they would have been getting four or five years ago. I think people have got some 
ideas about what goes on in private colleges, uh, you know, prejudices maybe, but those private colleges, at least in Ontario, most of them are teaching public public college curriculums, right? There's, mm-hmm. a, there's a subcontracting arrangement where the, the private college takes all these students from India and, you know, they're, they're teaching a public college's curriculum and the students are getting a public college diploma and all that kind of stuff, right? So, I, you know, I'm, I'm not convinced about the diploma mill thing. I still think I still think it's a reasonably good idea to say, let's find young people from around the world who really want to be here, make sure they get a, a good education while they're here, and then we give them a path to citizenship. It's not clear to me that that idea is wrong. I think the pace at which we're pursuing it might be a little misguided. Mm-hmm. But I think the basic idea, you know, is not... Uh, it isn't one we should throw out too quickly. Now, it seems like, based on the comments we've been hearing recently, the federal government is finally getting that message. Do you see them uh, hitting the brakes a little bit, uh, easing easing some of these numbers to, to bring them down to a much more manageable level? It's hard to do. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, the idea that I've heard bandied around is around capping the number of student visas. And that's difficult for any number of reasons, because as soon as you cap the number of visas, you have to figure out how to ration them. And almost every way you can think of of rationing just becomes incredibly complicated very quickly. I think if what we want to do is, as you say, tap the brakes, um, the way to do that is probably for the federal government to make it a little bit less um, uh, attractive to study here, and that'll be difficult for them because they've been thinking, how do I make it more attractive for you know the last ten or fifteen years? But mm-hmm. um, I mean, the obvious things is yes, you could make it a little bit more difficult for students to work while they're here. That would make Canada less attractive. They could start charging students uh, or institutions, I guess, for study visas. You know, if you slap a five thousand dollar tax on on every visa process, um, that'll gum up the works pretty quickly. So those are, and those are kinds of things that they could do very quickly without talking to the provinces. They could, you know, they could implement tomorrow if they wanted to. Um, uh, so I think that would be the more productive way to go. Um, yeah, because I think the idea of caps just becomes very unworkable very quickly. But ultimately, we are going to have to find a solution here, and relatively quickly, uh, just because of the impact it's having on on municipalities, as you say, uh, and uh, perhaps someone could argue even the broader perception. Uh, of the Canadian public when it comes to our immigration system? I think that's probably true. Um, and I think the fact that the cabinet, uh, the federal cabinet decided to make a big show of talking about both student visas and housing at the same time at their cabinet retreat a couple weeks ago in, in Charlottetown, I think that tells you that we're going to see some uh, significant moves within the next six months. Um, you know, how much of it is, is sort of, you know, knee-jerk, you know, put the brakes on, and, and how much of it is, is, you know, more thoughtful, um, long-term discussions that involve provinces and municipalities. I don't know. Uh, but yes, I think there's, there certainly is something. There is a change coming soon. Uh, Alex, thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. Okay, take care. This week, uh, we've had some conversation around whether tiny shelters can fight homelessness uh, here in Vancouver. Uh, Vancouver's previous council approved the pilot project for the tiny shelters in February of 2022. Uh, They had allocated about $1.5 million for the two-year initiative. Now, 
each one of these tiny homes are about 100 square feet, and they're meant to uh, to be equipped with heat and air conditioning, power space for two people, and to lock the door. Now, there's been delay in regards to getting these houses up and running, uh, but we are told they will. There was a bit of a delay. Uh, now, we're not the first jurisdiction, actually, uh, to look at uh, tiny homes. We're joined now by Jerry Mayor, Jud- Jerry Mayor Judson, our contributor, Jerry. Uh, other parts of the country have actually looked at this. Oh, yeah. It's uh, huge, specifically in Ontario. There's all of sort of the major population centers. Uh, specifically, Hamilton is really big into having these like tiny shelters made available, these communities for people who are not currently sheltered. Uh, Kitchener, I think Peterborough, Windsor, I, no, sorry, Waterloo, um, all kinds of places, specifically in Ontario, have these kinds of settlements. So I did talk to Tony D'Amato Stortz. He is uh, the founder of an organization called Better Street and Better Street consults with organizations who help out those experiencing homelessness. So he's worked with uh, the Hamilton Association for Tiny Shelters. And I asked him about how many communities he's helped set up. There's communities being set up right now in Hamilton and in Peterborough. There's a community in Kitchener and another one in Waterloo. And there's projects on the go as well in Toronto, Belleville, Winnipeg, and more kind of being born every couple of weeks. Of course, like you're based in Ontario, so you're, it, it makes sense that you have, uh, that your organization set up these communities more so in Ontario. Is there any talks about doing anything like that in British Columbia? Yeah, absolutely. So I've been in contact with some folks who were interested in doing some work on Vancouver Island. I also took a trip out to Vancouver last year to sort of see what was going on there. I visited Crab Park and did some time in East Hastings as well just to sort of understand the problem because, you know, Vancouver is one of the cities that is struggling with this the most publicly. So I just, I wanted to have some boots on the ground. So there's definitely interest in in BC and there's some conversations, just nothing started yet. Okay, good, good. I'm, uh, I'm really glad to hear that. It's, Cool, too, that it's very much supportive housing as well. It's not just here are structures and here is a fixed address for a moment. Figure it out. It's it's great that, uh, yeah, there seems to be supports for these folks in your villages as well. Wraparound services are essential. We talk a lot about housing first, and I think that there's a lot of benefit to that idea. But the question we don't ask often enough is, okay, what second? You get somebody into a place where they're safe and they have a locking door and temperature control and a safe place to be. But how do you continue to wrap that person in the health, mental health, job training, therapeutic supports that will help them become the best version of themselves as they define that, right? Not as we define that. That's very extra dignified. I'm buoyed to hear that uh, that you've been out here, out this way, and that it is... The wheels are slowly turning. Absolutely. And you hit exactly the right word. Dignity is the name of the game in this line of work. So beginning, middle and end all has to come from a place of dignity and real respect for the person and the people who you're doing this for and with. I love that that is the the central tenet because this whole um, idea to to reach out and talk to you guys was because there was a an encampment um, that was like that the city came in and, and evicted these people. It was just visually striking, I guess, because there were so many propane tanks that people might have been used for using for heating outdoors, and that like is cited as yep. a safety concern. But it's like, well, maybe when you remove the dignity part, it's like, well, then people, of course, are going to scramble, and if you have to be outdoors. It's like, well, they're trying to make yourself more comfortable. Safety be damned because there's no dignified housing available, right? One term that goes hand in hand with that for me is real options, right? Let's say there's 2,000 people 
unsheltered in Vancouver. I'm, I'm making the numbers up. Mm-hmm. Let's say there's 2,000 people unsheltered in Vancouver, and the city opens a massive warehouse with 2,000 cots, and then says, we've solved unsheltered homelessness. That may be an option on paper, but it's not a real option for no. people who are experiencing it, right? When you clear an encampment, and when you get rid of all those things, like I agree, propane tanks, you know, can be dangerous. Like open flame heating sources are dangerous, but people don't have any other real options. Too often we ask ourselves the wrong question. We say, this is dangerous, it has to be removed, but we don't say, well, what's this person actually going to do without this? And I think if we could start from asking those kinds of questions, then the dignity comes back into the piece. And that's, that's where I get a lot of hope from, is that we've been trying to solve this problem with a toolbox, essentially, from the 1930s. Mm-hmm. Soup kitchens and shelter beds in the basements of churches and cots on the floor. There, there is innovation happening in this space, but not at the scale it has to. And I'm, I'm optimistic that if we can bring new thinking and new models and new ideas to this problem, and then the resources to match we can solve this. Like It's a solvable problem. It's just one that we've dragged our feet on for too long. So in this case, I'm just trying to imagine this, um, the, the site themselves beyond the, the tiny homes, mm-hmm. you would have washroom f- facilities, oh, yeah. potentially a kitchen. Totally. Right. And, yeah. uh, and as Tony was saying there, there would be wraparound services. So there'd be nurses available, mm-hmm. mental health workers, yep. perhaps to help you find uh, employment yep. and permanent housing. Exactly. So the question, I think, the next question would be, where would you find a place like that in Vancouver? That would be a challenge, wouldn't it? Is The the challenge is the where. The easy part, um, Tony was saying in a, in, a, in a part of our chat that like, the easy part is building the structures. That's great okay. and fine, but it's it's then the um, finding the organizations to work with, to to partner with, to to build these, uh, to to get the materials, to get the zoning, to get the just sort of like manpower oh, and the and approval the, to do it. Not just exactly. official them, but a neighborhood, right? No, exactly. And That's the a, thing. And the second issue one could argue, or at least discuss here, is. Are you institutionalizing a new type of housing that just it becomes permanent, but it doesn't solve the core issue, right? Uh, and, and, and as much as I, I get where he's coming from, yeah. how do you sell that to a neighborhood and say, look, we're going to put up some tiny homes in this area mm-hmm. with a wraparound service. And the first thing they're going to ask is, well, how long is it going to be there? And if you say, well, um, a couple of years, maybe five years, mm-hmm. or it'll help deal with the issue on a permanent basis, mm-hmm. that's a much harder sell. That is true. Um, it's it take it takes a unique approach to get people to say yes. Actually, in my backyard, because yes. it's like, it, it, it yeah, it's it's it can be a big ask for sure. Um, especially yeah, just the perceptions of what it would be like to have uh, one of these communities very close by. But I think that um, I think like. It's it's the it's the addition of dignity and additional services mm-hmm. I think that really take away what people might be afraid of um, in terms of having a community like this. And so this conversation about tiny homes in mm-hmm. Vancouver is still the physical structure. Mm-hmm. They haven't talked about wraparound services if they're going to be around mm-hmm. and some of these other facilities, yeah. uh, you know, a kitchen potentially or even just a place to clean your clothes, all yeah. those types of things, wash your clothes, all that sort of thing. So mm-hmm. that's still part of the broader conversation that has to occur. No, absolutely. It's it's complicated, but it's interesting. It is working, it seems, in some neighborhoods or yeah. some some communities yeah, in Ontario. Lots of success elsewhere. We just gotta we gotta think innovatively in this space. We gotta not you gotta use a different toolbox. It's not from the nineteen thirties. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. From two thousand and nine to two thousand and twenty, the Vancouver Sun reports that the region lost two hundred and fifty square kilometers of forests, fields, and wetlands 
and other ecosystems, mainly from logging, agriculture, and development. It was a report prepared for uh, the Metro Vancouver Board. By the way, that's the equivalent of six Stanley Parks worth of natural habitat in the past decade alone. Joining me now to talk a little bit about this report is Dr. Jenny Moore, Director of Sustainability at the British Columbia Institute of Technology. Dr. Moore, thank you for joining us. Thank you. My pleasure. Uh, When you hear of reports like this and the findings of this report, what goes through your mind? Unfortunately, it's nothing new. We've been losing ground against securing our ecological resources for decades and decades and decades now. Uh, One would assume there would be rules, regulations, laws at a municipal and provincial level. Why is this happening? That's a great question. We do have rules and we do have laws. We have an agricultural land reserve dedicated to preserving agricultural land as a resource for food security. We have riparian zone setbacks trying to protect our, the streams and creeks, the bank sides for the health of those streams. All of these things are essential to healthy functioning of ecosystems, which are essential to the life support systems we need to support our economy, to support our health. Unfortunately, our economy doesn't actually price the true costs of taking those natural resources and converting them into more economic activity, more residential development, etc., All of these needs are competing against each other, but the ones that have the highest dollar value in our economy usually win. And so we see constant erosion of those ecosystems. Mm -hmm. Why are these ecosystems important? And what what I mean by that is, uh, you know, in in cities where there's so much density and so much growth still expected in this city, we're expecting another million people to move to Vancouver by 2050. Uh, While I don't want to be a pessimist, one would argue this is part of what happens when we invite so many people here uh, that when we push for greater density, greater growth, that it's almost impossible to stop what's happening? Well, you you make a really good point. Cities are places where we live in dense numbers. Unfortunately, we're not actually optimizing that density opportunity. Where we locate cities, and Vancouver's no exception, is usually in resource-rich areas. So here on the Fraser River, it's one of the biggest, most important ecosystem estuaries. It's one of the major rivers of the world. Mm -hmm. So it's important for us to make sure that we're simultaneously preserving those ecosystems. Now, I don't want to underestimate your point, right? The whole thing around cities is density. If we were doing density even better, we could probably protect those natural resources Unfortunately, though, they keep getting eroded because there's a constant economic push to convert that natural land into development. But it's not always the highest density. It's often lower density suburban development that's taking away from those forest systems, for example, at the periphery of our cities. Mm -hmm. Uh, So do you think we should seek to buy more of that land and, and turn it into parkland or very much or at the very least say the city has purchased this land or the provincial government has there will be absolutely no development uh, on this particular bit of property because it it is very important to the ecology, to the city, absolutely no development. Is that what we're going to have to do, just buy more land as as taxpayers? It might be where we have to go for some of this, and that's a really hard concept for many people to get their head around. We've constantly prioritized human needs, but unfortunately now we're economically growing ourselves into ecological and social despair. Over the long run, these impacts are simply building up and building up, and climate change is really just the tip of the iceberg. We're facing water shortages. We are going to have increasing challenges with feeding ourselves over the long run. So, yes, at some point, 
we may start to have to secure those ecological resources simply by owning the title. And there's groups like the Nature Conservancy and others that have been trying for a long time to get these lands out of market speculation so that they can continue to function as ecosystems that support us. Why do you think the will's not there? I mean, we, we'd we like to believe, or I'd like to believe, there's uh, environmental consciousness that, is, that has been growing for the last 30 years. We are an activist province when it comes to uh, you know, preserving parks, uh, preserving particular areas uh, that shouldn't be forested. This has been predominantly the debate we've been having the last 30 years. We debate, uh, you know, natural gas development, oil development. Uh, we have a broader conversation about climate change. Why is the will not there? One would think this would be, I hate to say it, a no-brainer, to, quite frankly. You would, and it should be a no-brainer because our survival depends on it. I think one of the very big challenges is these are complex issues and it's hard for people to wade through the complexity. But here's a big challenge. We are all proponents of economic growth and economic growth provides jobs, financial security, etc. But when that economic system undervalues the true costs of the ecological systems and some of the social impacts that um, people are bearing, Mm -hmm. we don't internalize those costs and we just chase economic growth, we create inequitable benefit takers and a lot of cost bearers. And some people are going to benefit a lot from taking that land and developing it. Other people, well, arguably, everybody benefits to some level, but we don't really account for the real cost. So I agree with you. We're thinking about it more, Mm -hmm. but at the end of the day, the dollar still wins. And if that dollar doesn't fully account for those costs, at the long term, we're all going to lose. So, the, so, so it's it, complex. So, yeah, exactly. So I'm trying to, I'm trying to uh, synthesize what you're saying here. So the, the system itself, the, the, the political system at the, at the policy level, uh, our economic system uh, is not yet geared to protect these valuable ecosystems, even though we should be doing so just because of the sheer size of this city and it's the right thing to do. That's 100% right. Like, the right thing to do isn't always the cost-effective thing to do. And if that's the case, then you know there's a problem in the way that we started to price the value through money, right? Like, Mm -hmm. it shouldn't be more expensive to do the right thing. Mm -hmm. But right now it is, and that's a real challenge. And it's hard year over year over year to protect these lands in the face of their increasing potential value to be converted into other non-ecosystem resources. And I'd just like to point out, you know, what's happening here in the region is just a microcosm of what's going on globally. Outside of our regional boundaries, we're also taking those resources at a massive scale and destabilizing our global ecosystem as well. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if we don't figure it out locally, we don't have a hope of figuring this out globally either. Mm -hmm. Well, Dr. Andrew Weaver on the show yesterday, we were talking about lessons learned over the summer when it comes to climate change, and still a lot uh, that still has to be answered for in regards to how we respond to not never mind just local wildfires locally, but how we consume and all of those things. It's so interconnected, and we don't actually consider it. When, when, When a report like this comes out that is so of actually blunt in regards to what we've lost and what we need to do. It is, it's, it's an eye-opener, that's for sure. Um, Dr. Moore, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.